You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part eight of a series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter five, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We'll pause reading there after verse 16 of Matthew 5. Now, of course, we're continuing here in what has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount, the longest portion of Jesus' teaching that we find in any of the Gospels in the Bible. It runs from Matthew chapter 5 through to chapter 7. The uh, sermon, of course, opens with the wonderful statements of blessing that we looked at in the last episode that run from Matthew 5 verse 2 to verse 11. And there we have eight Beatitudes, statements of who is blessed and why they are blessed. And then, of course, verse 11 and 12 uh, repeat the uh, idea in the, in the last of those Beatitudes, assuring of blessing when we are persecuted. And those Beatitudes are describing the nature of God's kingdom. The first Beatitude says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. The last beatitude says it belongs to those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And the fact that kingdom of heaven is at the beginning and the end is telling us that the whole thing is about the nature of God's kingdom. These qualities describe the people who are part of God's kingdom. Uh, they describe too, uh, the, the rewards that are mentioned describe the blessings that come through being part of God's kingdom. And so as we read on into verses 13 to 16, we have to bear in mind the fact that Jesus is talking about kingdom people. He's talking about the people who will come into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that he has come to declare and to open up through his teaching, to describe it, and through his death and resurrection. He's going to open up the way into this kingdom that is through faith in him. Uh, like a little child, as we'll see in Matthew 18, or through new birth, as Jesus describes it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So kingdom people are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. What does that mean? Well, of course, Jesus was uh, an expert at using imagery from the surrounding culture, familiar images to describe spiritual realities. He does that in his parables and he does it in these little pithy sayings. So influential are these sayings, of course, that the salt of the earth has come in English to mean uh, a particular kind of person, good people, people who are uh, top quality, to be admired, respected, trustworthy, truthful, honest people. Now, of course, that isn't entirely what Jesus means here. You know, we need to dig a little bit deeper to understand these images. And I think the light of the world image, which we'll come to second, is probably a little bit clearer 
partly because Jesus says more about it. We have three verses about this image uh, and partly because I think light is, is a very strong image that means the same thing for us that it would have meant for Jesus hearers, even if light is more readily available to us in our age of electric lighting. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about the salt of the earth? Well, if you have salt in your house, then uh, it's almost certainly for the purpose of cooking, for adding to food, to enhance its flavour, to draw out natural flavours. Uh, that's our predominant reason for using salt in the modern world. I also have a bag of coarse salt that I use sometimes on those rare occasions when in Northern Ireland it's icy enough for me to need to grit the, the driveway to, to keep it safe, to keep us from slipping. Salt is a very useful product, even in the modern world. But the reality is that you may not even have any salt in your house because, of course, much of our food that we buy is already processed, already salted. We don't need to add salt to it. Uh, and so our instinctive way of thinking about salt might be to do with flavour. And you may have heard this uh, this saying of Jesus illustrated in that way that Christians bring flavour to the world. They draw out its flavours. They en enrich its taste. Now, um, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, but I'm not going to say that it's outside the range of what Jesus has in mind. I think these sayings of Jesus often have a, a wide range of application. Uh, they, they draw out various different meanings. But I think the immediate application for people in Jesus' day would not have been primarily about taste. That wasn't how they were using salt, although that's undoubtedly one of the things salt uh, would have had a benefit for. In Jesus' day, there were two predominant uses of salt. One of those was to do with food, but not so much to do with adding flavour to food. It was more to do with preserving food. So salting was one of the main ways to preserve food, particularly uh, meats and fish. It still, of course, is one of those ways today, along with pickling and uh, making jams with, with large amounts of sugar. Uh, but salt is excellent at preserving. But the other usage for salt was not in the kitchen at all. It was agricultural. Salt was used to uh, enrich the soil. Now, uh, there's some debate about whether salt is really beneficial for soil. Certainly, uh, some of the biblical references to adding salt to soil don't suggest that at all, because if you've too much salt in soil, of course, it becomes uh, impossible for life to grow there. But a small amount of salt, and particularly the kind of salt that would have been available in the ancient world, which was not pure sodium chloride like our table salt today. They didn't have ways of preserve or purifying salt to that degree. So the salt that would have been used, rock salt, would have had a, a mixture of different chemicals in it, not just sodium chloride, but also potassium and potentially some nitrates, all of which are enriching for soil. So salt was, uh, it seems, used in the ancient world to enrich soil as a kind of fertiliser. 
There's also some suggestion that it was used to preserve dung heaps. So if you had a, a heap of dung, uh, rather than letting that decay, if you covered it in salt, that would help prevent the bacteria growing on it uh, and mean that it would have a longer useful life. And when we read uh, the parallel statement to this in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus uh, saying about salt is quoted uh, uh, by by, G, by Luke as he records Jesus' teaching. That's in Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 34 to 35. I think it becomes clear that this idea was in Jesus' mind at that point because uh, Luke 14, 34 to 35 says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That's clearly the same as what Jesus says, or similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 35 of Luke 14. It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So when Jesus talks about salt in Luke 14, he clearly has its agricultural use in mind. Um, this is no good for the soil if it doesn't have its salty qualities. It's no good for the manure pile. It can't preserve the manure or enrich the manure. It should just be thrown away. Now, is that what Jesus has in mind in Matthew 5? Well, on one hand, he says, you are the salt of the earth. That might suggest that it's the, the earth that Jesus expects the salt to be applied to rather than to food. But then at the same time, he says, if it has lost its taste, you notice that in, uh, well, that's both in Luke um, 14 and Matthew 5. That might make us think, well, he's thinking more about food. But of course, tasting the salt would be the way of telling you whether it contains the useful chemicals or not. Uh, and so just the fact that you might taste it doesn't mean that its use is for is for food. That idea of the salt losing its taste might seem strange to us because table salt that you buy in the shop can't really lose its taste. It's always going to be salty. But if this salt in Jesus' day was more like rock salt, it was a mixture of chemicals not refined, then it was quite possible that some of those chemicals would either break down over time or would leach out of that if moisture got in. Uh, the ones that are more soluble in water when it wasn't so easy to keep things in an airtight container. And so the salt would become ineffective. So uh, what is it that Jesus is thinking about when it comes to this salt of the earth? Is it uh, the agricultural use or is it the, the culinary use in the kitchen? Well, it's quite possibly both. And there is a common theme between both of these uses, of course, isn't there? Salt does two things. It preserves and it enriches. It preserves the manure. If you cover the manure in salt, it preserves the soil. Part of the benefit is that it, it makes the uh, other nutrients in the soil more accessible. So I am led to believe I'm no expert in that. Uh, it enriches the flavour of food as well, doesn't it? But it also preserves the food. and it, So it enriches and it preserves. And I think <coughs> these are the ideas behind what Jesus is, is saying here. I wouldn't go as far as one author that I was reading who on a, on a blog says that, well, salt can do five things and all of these things are equally in Jesus' mind. I, I, I think that's 
unlikely, I think, to the first hearers. Those are the dominant ideas that would have come through preserving and enriching. There are some other ideas that we might think of. Salt is used in the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, particularly the grain offering. If you read in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, it had to be seasoned with salt. Um, but uh, hard to know exactly why salt was to be used there. God doesn't spell that out, but it's probably to do with its qualities of enriching and preserving. Uh, destroying is the other thing. Salt is associated with destruction. In Mark nine forty nine, the Lord Jesus, speaking about judgment, says everyone will be salted with fire. Um, and in uh, the Old Testament, whenever Abimelech, the son of Gideon, destroys the city of Shechem, he uh, raises the city and sows it with salt. That's presumably to make its, its uh, ground um, unfruitful. It's excessively salty. Uh, and uh, that idea of salt being deadly also comes up in the Psalms, Psalm 107, verse 34, uh, that a fruitful land is turned into a salty waste. The judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah involved Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt and seems to have created this saltiness of the, uh, the Dead Sea region where the cities of the plain used to be. Uh, and God through Moses warns the Israelites that their land will be burned with brimstone and salt so that nothing can grow um, uh, if they break God's covenant, Deuteronomy 29 verse 23. So salt can be a sign of judgment. And it's possible that Jesus has that in mind in, in, in Matthew 5 as well. Um, uh, certainly it's possible that those who knew the Old Testament might have had that sense in the background of their mind. But that doesn't seem to be the dominant idea in Matthew chapter 5. And the reason I would say that is because the parallel image of the light of the world in verse 16 uh, says that in the same way, let your light shine before others so they might see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. So the idea doesn't seem to be predominantly that through seeing us and through our influence in the world, the world comes under God's judgment, but that the world will see God's goodness and give glory to him. I suppose those two are connected because those who have seen the glory of God uh, and have not responded then will face uh, God's judgment. That is certainly true. But I think the dominant idea here is of the influence that Christians have in the world, which is an influence of enriching and preserving. And an influence of witness. So as Christians enrich the world through the good that they do, and as Christians preserve the world from evil because they resist evil and do good, that is for the good of people, yes, but it's for the greater purpose of bringing God glory, which I'll come to when we look at the light of the world image. But the risk here is that the salt can lose its taste. The quality of our lives, the, the degree to which our lives reflect the reality of the kingdom of heaven, the degree to which the qualities of the Beatitudes are reflected in our lives is proportional to the degree that we can bless the world, that we can enrich the world through our good deeds. 
It's proportionate to the degree to which we preserve the world from evil. And it's proportionate to the degree to which we show God's glory to the world. We must be salty people. We must be different from the culture. We must be those those people who, who, who are markedly different, who are seen to be different. We must be kingdom people. And that means we have to constantly go back to the Beatitudes and to see what they're teaching us about the nature of, of God's kingdom, about the nature of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, about the nature of, of the heart of a person of his kingdom, poor in spirit, mourning because of our sin, meek and humble before God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, bearing persecution. These things will show the world that we are different. These things are not common qualities in the kingdom of this world or the kingdoms of this world. They are markers of the kingdom of heaven. They are markers of the rule of God in our lives. And as we become increasingly like this, and as we live this way, we are salt in the world. Now, of course, salt needs to be applied whether it's to the food or to the soil, whether it's the agricultural or the, the culinary use, it has to be applied, doesn't it? As Becky Manley Pippert says in the title of her, her famous Christian book about evangelism, out of the salt shaker, you can't be in the salt shaker and make a difference in the world. That would be akin to putting the light under a basket. It's ridiculous. The purpose of salt is to enrich and to preserve, and to do so, it must be applied. So uh, here is the challenge for us. Are we in the world actively? Are we preserving the, the world? Are we enriching the world by being kingdom people, authentically salty people? And if I'm not stretching the image a bit too far, of course, salt creates thirst, doesn't it? Salt is, is something that uh, when, you, when you have too much salt, you want to drink. And, and in that sense, I think uh, salt is a is something that in our lives, when people see it, they want to ask questions. They want to understand. They, they want to uh, see what is it that makes this difference in your life. They ask you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Well, I think here we, we are, uh, as God's people, called to make a difference, called to be the, uh, the, the kingdom people, called to be salt in this world, the salt of the earth applied, preserving and enriching. What about the second image, the light of the world? Well, you're probably familiar with John's gospel where Jesus calls himself the light of the world. In John 8 verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, in John 9 verse 5, he says, uh, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And uh, the idea here is of the light that shines in the darkness, as John chapter 1 puts it, that the light which brings life shone into the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. 
Or as Jesus says in John 3, that people prefer darkness to light. They like to hide away in the dark because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. But the person who lives in the light comes into the light so that it can be seen that the things they do are done by God in that person and for God's glory. Light reveals things. Light in scripture is to do with truth, with revelation. It's to do with seeing the things the way they truly are. It's a synonym or an image rather of, of truth. God, we're told in John's gospel, or sorry, John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, God is light. Sometimes we jump straight to later on in 1 John where it says God is love. That is certainly true, but God is also light. He is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. He is always truthful. There is no darkness at all in him. And as we stand in the light of God, our sin is exposed. Our, uh, and we are guided, of course. Light not only exposes sin, it not only exposes what is dangerous or bad, but it guides our path. It shows us the way to live. And so Jesus, as he was in the world, was the light of the world, revealing truth about God, revealing the sins of people, revealing the, the love of God to people as well. And now that Jesus is no longer in the world, his people are the light of the world. As we follow Jesus and as we become like Jesus, as we live as kingdom people, we are shining God's light to the world. It is light that exposes the sin of the world. Perhaps that has something to do with the judgment idea that we saw might be in the background of the salt image. But not primarily again in these verses, it's not about us exposing the sin of the world, but exposing the glory of God to the world. Our light shines before people because they see our good works, verse 16 says. The light is the fruit of the goodness of God at work in us. A city set on a hill, Jesus says, cannot be hidden. I'm sure you've you've seen that. Maybe it's not so common in our in our world today where uh, we can be surrounded by electric lights everywhere and there's even a lot of light pollution. But if you're in a very dark place far away from civilization, you can see the lights of a city miles away. If it's on a hill, you can see those lights. Even if it's not on a hill, you can see them lighting up the sky. If you look from uh, from the the from space, from a satellite image, you can see the cities of the world brightly lit up across the globe. Light penetrates the darkness. Light is visible. Nobody lights a lamp and hides it under a basket. They put it on a stand. They give light to the whole house. Our light must shine before others. That does not mean, and in fact, when we get further into Matthew's gospel, we'll see that Jesus says that we shouldn't do our acts of piety in public on display for everyone, praying and giving and so on. We're not meant to be hypocritical or self-righteous people showing off, pointing to ourselves. The good deeds that Jesus is talking about here are not things that we present to others so they can think well of us or praise us. 
No, we present them to others so that people can see God's goodness and give him glory. That's the distinctive thing about Christian good deeds. That as a Christian, we don't do good deeds because we are good, or at least we don't want people to think that's why we do them. We do good deeds because God is good. We do good because our Father in heaven is good and we're learning from him what it is to be good. We do good because we are obedient citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We do good because we have learnt from the Lord Jesus what is truly good and we have learnt from him to love others. But the important thing here is that our good deeds are never separated from our declaration of the gospel, our declaration of the coming of God's kingdom. If you do that, if you simply do good deeds for people, but you don't take the opportunities that you might have to to tell them that you are uh, a Christian and that's why you're doing it, then you're not really giving glory to your heavenly father, are you? So if you want to give glory to your heavenly father, then people need to know that it is him that you are serving. So glorify your father. Give praise to him. Let people know that you are no better than anybody else, but you are simply the child of God, a citizen of a different kingdom, that you are interested in what is good for them, yes, but you are interested in what is good for them because God is teaching you to love them. Proclaim the gospel and do deeds of mercy. These two things belong together. They always do. They always belong together in Christian mission, in Christian living. We we aren't simply doing good for the sake of good. That's not bad in itself, but we are doing good for the sake of God's glory. We're doing good and we're proclaiming the good news at the same time. So, You are the salt of the earth if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. You are the light of the world. Retain your saltiness. Don't cover up the light that God has placed in you. Keep on living by the values of God's kingdom. Keep on doing the deeds that flow from those values so that you can give glory to your Father in heaven, that people will see your good works and they too will come to know him.